Any any prayers, prayer requests today? Uh-oh. Say your son's name. No? Okay. Any prayer request? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for um, the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself this morning. Um, help us not to forget that um, what we receive in the Eucharist is the fruit of your horrible crucifixion. Um, you went to the cross to answer an, um, an injustice on our part. Um, sad thing when we act like we're not unjust ourselves. God, it's so easy for us to act as if everything's okay when so often it's not. What a great gift that you would take your divine personhood and let it be nailed to a cross. Awful death, so that we could answer an awful injustice. Strengthen us in our efforts to stay close to you, um, um, to give our wills to what you're asking, to bring justice into the world, and to bring a mercy to the way we do that. Both of them, not one or the other, not one at the expense of the other, but both of them. Hard thing. Help us all to do that. Um, I ask for a special blessing on parents today, all of us, um, with the, um, sometimes the burdens we carry in our families with our kids, um, and those we love. Um, uh, marriages are struggling. It's, a, it's not an easy time. Um, um, there's so much going on around us. Um, I, I'm offering Thanksgiving myself for reading a book like Brothers because it makes clear a whole world and the way in which we're all involved with each other, even though we're not aware of it always, but we are, hopefully we'll, we are in this class. Um, help us to remember what Boethius taught us, that there's no bad fortune. No matter what we do, the stupid things we do, um, the foolish things, the things from our own um, incompleteness, our own inadequacies, our own failures, our own weaknesses, whatever we do, you're always at work with all of us, um, working with whatever our circumstances. This is amazing, because multiply it times billions all over the world. But you're at work with all your ministering angels, um, trying to bring good out of the things that we do, that we can more fully enter into your joy. In this time of Easter, um, Lent, and um, fasting, strengthen us in our efforts to put ourselves away so that we can make a greater room for you in our lives and be more able to bring you to all that we do, particularly with each other. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 Can you pull out the, the Shakespeare song? I'm trying to pick out lyrics right now that are appropriate for Lent. We've already done this, I know, um, but it, I just, it came to my mind when I was thinking about lyrics that are penitential in spirit. In the next couple of weeks, I'm going to go to the um, Old Testament. I'm going, to, I'm going to be reading Psalms, the penitential Psalms. So for the rest of our time, we're going to go back to the Old Testament, and, and I'll use those as our opening lyrics, just to 
reinforced how important this period is, that it's a time for um, being more aware of our sins, our failures, and asking for God's help, His mercy. So through the rest of the night, I'll be reading Psalms. Remember, Psalms are lyrics. They're meant to be they're, they're meant to be put to the lyre, the lyric music, um, the source of it. So, But for tonight, I want to go back and reread a, a song. I made, I can't remember if the copy I gave you had this change. But if you look at Sonnet 146, you'll see that the, that the opening lines are changed. It, sh it, should not it should not only be the opening of that second line, it should be towards the end of the second line, too. I think the one I gave you didn't have this change, but it makes more sense if it's theirs. That's why I gave you a, another copy. Because there's some confusion about the actual writing. Scholars will debate about it, you know, what actually takes place in this um, second line. But it, it, to me, it's, it makes more sense with this change, so I, I've given you this copy tonight. Sonnet 146. Remember, this is part of um, Shakespeare's sonnet cycle. He wrote. The, as you all know, it's almost impossible to read a work of literature in a vacuum, in isolation. Works of literature don't exist in isolation. They never do. Poets are aware of other poets. They're speaking to other books. Shakespeare was, was aware of an Italian poet who wrote a sonnet cycles, um, and many of the Renaissance poets did the same. So this poem is a part of a, a much longer um, cycle in which Shakespeare is dealing with a love triangle, the love between the poet and a, and a mistress and a young man who is full of talent, but who seems to be um, under the spell of this woman. There's likelihood that there are betrayals and intrigues. Um, so most people read these in isolation, so you, you don't see that it's a part of the backstory, but, but just keep this in mind. This is a part of a longer story. Um, Petrarch was the Italian poet, and Petrarch was following Dante. But if you look at Dante and then look at Petrarch, you can see Petrarch's already moving away from the world as we know it in Dante's Comedian and in his poetry. So this is from Shakespeare's sonnet cycle, 146. <clears throat> Poor soul, the center of my sinful earth, the center of his body, all fleshly things. Foiled by these rebel powers at the array, why dost thou pine within and suffer dirt, painting thy outward wall so costly gay? It's like the soul is estranged from the body because the person gives so much attention to the body. Homes, furnishing, cars, apparel, um, all that we lavish on our body without thinking of the expense <coughs> on our spiritual life, our soul. Painting thy outward wall so costly gay, why so large a cost, having so short a lease? Why do we give all this time when our life here on earth is so short? Dost thou upon thy fading mansion spend? Shall worms, inheritors of this excess, eat up thy charge, thy body? Is this thy body's end? Then so live thou upon thy servant's loss, and let that pine to aggravate thy store. Let it make you work harder to take care of what's more real, the soul. By terms divine, in selling hours of dross, we then be fed, without be rich no more. So shall thou feed on death, that feeds on men. And death once dead, there's no more dying then. 
the more we take our bodies on and learn to deny them, the more we live in our spiritual life, <coughs> the more we defeat death and enter into eternity. It's a good Latin poem. Okay. <laughs> Tonight I thought we'd skip to the last chapter because I know you guys are all almost all done with brothers. Really? Right. <laughs> Glad somebody could laugh at that. <laughs> I'm actually done. Are you good for you, Mark? It's like one of the only times I've ever been. <laughs> I thought you, I, I personally, I'm saying this, I thought you'd take this seriously. Um, um, quickly, I want to do this quickly. Um, my plan right now is to do the Zosima section in. We'll probably end up spending the time, the evening on it. If there is time, um, we can look at what happens with Dmitry and um, Grushenka. But that in itself is a lot to. What's on my mind is trying to do both of them tonight. I don't think we're going to be able to do that. So the likelihood is we'll get through the Zosima um, story. And if we don't get into the Dmitry Grushenka, that's what we will do next week. And, and next week we will focus on that. Because there's a lot going on in that, on that section. Okay, so the great theme. Remember, I've already said it. I think the, the the central intuition of brothers is a nation undergoing a trial of faith. That's what the, that's what the, that's the heart of it. Dostoevsky is showing, and, and this will become really clear when we start looking at the episode. Dostoevsky is showing that there is nobody who can escape this dynamic. Um, another more dramatic way of putting it is this is not just about a people strug struggling in a trial of faith, it's undergoing a trial of faith. It's a people, as, as the poet shows us, dealing with evil and very often when they don't even know it. And that should become obvious in a few minutes if it's not obvious right now. But I think that's the central theme, that's the, the, the intuition at the center of this book that unifies all the parts. If you were to try to pull it together and say, what's holding all these disparate things, you know, in lots of ways they don't seem to relate to each other, but they do. What holds them together is this um, trial of faith. And I suggested last time that um, if we look at the book as a window on the Russian soul, I think it is, as a nation, Indirectly, it's also a window looking out on the Western world that's introduced all these influences into Russia. And I suggested last time that if we, if we look at the Russian soul as Dostoevsky's presented to us, it's impossible to read it without feeling these people are very passionate people. They're given to their passions deeply, instinctively. And what they're dealing with are intellectual influences, habits of mind that that, have, that slowly took form in the West, but that are suddenly imposed on a, on a culture in which those influences did not grow over time. So what's happening in Russia is violent, it's sudden, it's not organic, it didn't happen over time, um, and it's making us aware of um, extremes, of passion, of reason, of people struggling to to get those two things together and, and not doing very well with them at all. We talked about the, um, the, the novel in terms of three characteristics. 
Manithian satire, its detective quality, and um, the, the quality that are called carnival. Um, remember, the Manipian quality is, I think, what we see most clearly in uh, Fyodor Kermazov. It, it, um, Manipian satire is a, is a fragmenting that takes place on a large cultural scale, not individuals, for a whole people. And it's impossible to read this novel without feeling everybody participating. In fact, another way of saying that more blatantly is it's, it's hard to read this novel and find characters who, who don't seem to be tied to, spiritually to Fyodor. Lisa has no ties with him. Grushenka has no ties with him. You know, you can go on and find whatever character, um, Rakuten, you go on and on and on. Um, you will not read this book and come across these characters and not feel at some point they're lost, they're alone, they're isolated, and they're, they're also given to making fools of themselves. The word buffoon keeps coming up again and again and again. Lisa has, you know, I mean, it's not the best word to describe her when Dostoevsky or when um, Alyosha and she meet and they engage themselves to each other. But right after the Grand Inquisitor, when they meet again, she's called a little demon. She, she, she's humiliated. She, she knows that she's a fool. She can't stop herself. There's nobody who can escape this tension. It's a part of a natural, it's part of a nation struggling with something, okay? So it's manipian, it's detective. The narrator is constantly presenting things and doing it in a way that makes us aware something's gonna happen and you'll get to it later. You'll come back to it. So it's a way of keeping suspense and I wanna, we talked a good bit about that last time and I, I, I thought our last class was really good. Um, I, I wanna just mention one thing uh, because the narrator is a tricky guy. The novel is presented to us in terms of a limited first-person point of view. Is that clear? Limited first-person. There's an I telling the story. It's limited. He's telling the story about people in his own village that he knows personally. He got the, um, the written account of Zosima's life from Alyosha, who'd given it to him. So we're to understand that whatever he tells us comes from first-hand experience. He's not omniscient, he's not, he's not outside the story, he's inside this world. Um, but I suggested last time that even though that's true, there's an omniscient quality to him because he's constantly inside of a person's head, knowing something that he could not have gotten second-hand from somebody else. He goes into people's soul. We, we get into their minds and hear thoughts um, that nobody had access to. So, and, and I, I say this because some people might criticize Dostoevsky and say that's an artistic failure. I don't think it is. Um, Melville was faced with the same problem with Ishmael when Ishmael told his story, because he had access to Ahab's mind when nobody was around. <clears throat> if, you, if you hold too strictly to this first person limited and take away all those interior experiences, the novel would lose a lot of its depth. So just be aware of that. I think you can be overly critical and say, how does this guy know this? You know, it's a fair question. But um, my answer, I mean, it's, it's not a scientific answer, is that I think we're meant to assume that he has an intuitive sense of people sometimes that allows him to do that.
but I don't want to get legalistic. I'm just putting it out there for you to think about. But one of the things I want you to remember, those of you who are that far along will know this, when you get to the Dimitri episode, the episode unfolds um, scene by scene by scene by scene in chronological sequence. Dimitri goes to one place, then another, and then another, and another, looking for money because he wants to pay Katrina back before he gives up Grushenko and then takes his life. That's his plan when he sets out. He, he's enough of a man of honor that he does not want to go to his death leaving that debt unpaid because it would be humiliating to him. That's how great his pride is. Well, when the narrator presents it, it's this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. We learn, much, much later, that Dimitri kept something secret. I don't want to go there because I don't want to divulge anything. And you get there and think, holy cow, why did he do all this? But he did. And I think we're meant to accept the reasons that Dimitri gave us. But the narrator not once gave an indication of that, even though he should have known all that. I'm just saying that not to poke holes in the novel, because I don't want to do that. That's not my intent right now. It's, it's a way just of making clear something that some people can be too critical of. And that, to me, is a splendid example, because multiple scenes take place, and we don't learn until later that there was something else going on, and there's no way the narrator could not have known about it. But he doesn't let us know. Because if he did, it would destroy the suspense, and it would destroy what he's going to do with the interrogation later, when Dimitri is accused of, of a crime. I'm, I'm trying as hard as I can not to <laughs> give away things here. So the narrator's, um, a, a, it's a tricky business. I, I would just like to leave it at this, that it's a first person limited. Um, he's telling a story about people um, he knows personally. It means a lot to him to tell the story as faithful as he does. He's faithful to their language, to their character, to their traits, their circumstances. Whatever we say about this guy, this guy is very sensitive and he's very perceptive. He's a very observant person. And that means something for the story. And I want to put one last, I want to make one last comment. Lots of people get so caught up in the story that they never think about the narrator. Not a question. Because the narrator is like a window through which we see something. And we don't think about the window. And yet we know that there's nothing that we see that isn't through that window. So everything we're getting is through this guy's sensibility, his mind, his heart. And you can't ignore that. And yet it's easy to do that because you're so taken up with the story he's telling. But the narrative point of view is really important. This guy is, is telling us stories about um, people with whom he's familiar. It means enough for him to do it. It's 13 years after the event. A long time has passed. He's thought about it. And so there are things there to keep in mind that are a part of the story, okay? even if we don't make a lot of it. Um, Okay, the um, carnival aspect of the novel, remember, is from, um, as Bakhtin presents it, the, the carnival aspect um, is a term he uses to describe a world that's turned topsy-turvy, upside down. We know that the peasants have been um, the greater part of Russia's history up until this time. The, the, the serfs were um, freed a couple of centuries earlier, but they're still in a period of, of transition making their way in a world that let them down. Because even with their freedom, things became worse. And it became worse for the landowners. So um, the, the serfs are the people, they're, according to the narrator. These are the ones that make up Russia. 
If Russia is going to have a future, it's going to rest on the people. The people, the influx of Westerners, the well-educated, are those who come in who act with these pretensions that they know better than everybody else. And when you look at all of them, to a person, every one of them is a jerk. Just a jerk. Every one of them thinks he knows something and what we learn as we follow them, particularly these people because they're the educated, they're the ones who see least. In fact, they're worse in one sense because they bring with them an authority claiming to know whatever it is, a doctor, a lawyer, a commissioner. The doctors are pretty uniform in this, the lawyers, all of them. They make these claims that they have a knowledge that the serfs, the peasants, don't have. And over and over again we see how blind they are, how wrong they are, and how futile their actions are, and sometimes how unjust. I think one of the reasons that Dostoevsky does that is not only to show the pretensions of people coming in from the West, it's all to, to, to underscore a point. The only people in this novel who see well, who understand well, I think it's going to your question, Mark. The only people who read well, read well, are the people who love. Zasima is almost never wrong. And Alyosha, you can't read this story without feeling, in whatever relationship he's in, that we experience as readers, he's very often saying something um, truthful that nobody else can say. And over and over and over again, it's the people who love him because he does that. They can count on that. So he's an extension of Zosima. He's inherited this quality, this spiritual insight that makes it possible for him to see past <coughs> appearances. So um, we've got the narrative voice who's presenting the story. For the most part, I think he's resigned. There, obviously, there's an element of love, or he would not write this book. And in that sense, there's a line going from the narrator to Zosima to Alyosha. That there's a, a, um, a way of relating to people that only becomes possible in love. People in the intellect so often get it wrong. The serfs get it wrong. The peasants. Um, it's a universal quality. Um, I'm, and this is getting ahead of myself in the book. I think when we come out of this book, it'll be safe to say, this book is a very hopeful book. Dostoevsky writes it in hope. But it'll end with Alyosha working with a young generation. It's, it's Dostoevsky's hope. I, I don't believe it's going to be fulfilled in history. I mean, you know it's communism is going to follow this. And I, that's a question I want to get to, but not now. It's a, it's a book of hope, um, but the hope runs through those people who are free of those pretensions, those social pretensions. Um, the, um, Robert, what? could you go back to the point you were making about um, Zasimov and how he approached everything? Say, say what you, I'm trying to ask you, say what you said again about approaching everything with love and about what that, what that meant for the story and Alyosha. I'm not even sure what I said. What I'm, thinking, but what, I'm not. But I mean, let me let me come in to try to answer your question. Because it was really good. The, the, put it this way: if you look at what the narrator's done as a narrator, and you and you take him seriously, so that he's an aspect of the story, it's not just a window to see through. We realize that we have to take the narrator seriously because it comes through him. Then I think it's fair to say 
that he's like Zosima and Alyosha in this sense. He cares enough about these people to both love them and distance himself. By the way, this is what Kolya's going to say when we get to Kolya later on. He's going to say, it's absolutely important to get detached to people and, and still stay detached. Because if you emotionally get too involved, you can't stand outside enough to know that person or love him as he is. I mean, we've got, we've got a mind and a heart. So I, I, I don't remember what I said, but I think the point I'm making is that there's an affinity between the narrator um, and Zosima and Alyosha. So my way of describing it was there's a line between him, the narrator, and the characters. And one of the things I think we can say about it is that this book would not exist if he didn't have it, because the book is, is an expression of love. He identifies with these characters, he gets in there. Um, if you know enough about narrative techniques, you know that that's not true for lots of narrators. Uh, not, certainly not to this degree, or, or to this extent. I think what you said was that um, it's only the characters who love who can really see, um, truthfully. Right. Not get caught up in all of the other stuff. Right. So. And I would include the narrator in that. Or he couldn't, he couldn't have done the work the way he's done it. We would not get this world. The Grand Inquisitor, quickly, three. Um, remember the first miracle turned on bread, Christ being tempted to turn the stones into bread so people could eat. And um, we talked about what would happen if Christ had um, given in to the temptations. It seems to me what Satan is tempting Christ to here is to make material things, particularly food, because food's essential to us to make material things more important than God. Because if, if we do that, if we do that, we take God out of the picture and we make our material success everything. We take away mystery, we take away miracles, we undermine faith, because it's by faith that we enter into a supernatural life. Reason can't get us there, as good as it is. So, um, so the first Miracle or temptation addresses that conflict, um, that weakness in us as humans. In the second one, remember, Satan took him um, at a high point, one of the Gospels is to a mountain, and looked down and said, all of these nations will be yours. You can rule them all if you will bow down and serve me. And Christ says, um, the Lord thy God says, serve no other gods but me. And I think what would have been lost if Christ had given into that temptation was once again some aspect of God. We would have chosen power and control to have our world the way we wanted it because we could do that. And ironically, if Christ submitted himself to Satan, I can't even, I mean, I can't even contemplate that. Indirectly, we would have been serving Satan. Um, so once again, we would have lost everything holy everything greater than us, the whole kingdom of God. Remember that word I, I put up on the board dozens of times. Um, this, sorry. This word, diegesis, from the Greek, um, it means man gradually taking on the form 
um, a divine form, a divine nature. We talked a lot about this in a number of books. We, it was central to what Dante was doing. Um, it was a central term in early church history. Sadly, it's, um, we've become too humanized in some ways. I thought diegesis and mimesis were. Wait, Doc. I don't think that's the right word, is it, Robert? I think it is, but I, I'm take it for now. Di <laughs> Just go. <laughs> you know, mimesis and diegesis and, yeah. are the two. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, I know. Let me. I may be misspelling it, Doc. Um, the term refers to a gradual transformation in us as humans. Um, that's why the sacraments are so important, why the Protestant world is losing in some ways um, in taking the position that it does in eliminating the sacraments or weakening them, changing them. Um, that word was an expression of a gradual transformation that takes place in, in man because of his participation in the sacraments, that in the Eucharist we take Christ into us. We share in his divine nature. When, when the second person of the Trinity took on flesh and became Christ, it was the Son who became Christ, he took his divine nature into our human nature. And he had to do that because there was no way to answer the injustice if he didn't. Because there's, I hope that's clear by now because I've gone over it enough. Our sin was against God. There's no way a man could answer that sin, give satisfaction. We're, we're limited. He's infinite. Um, um, and a God doing it wouldn't answer our nature. For that sin to be answered, God had to take on our nature and all of our sins and be crucified. That was the cost of our defiance of God. He took on our nature but brought a divine element into it. When he returned, he took our human nature back, but it was, it was changed. So we're to understand, this is at the center of our church, that in going and returning to God, we won't just be humans as we know ourselves now. We get a glimpse of that in the transformation, or the transfiguration on the mountain. Remember when we, we get an image of the, the beauty and the glory of the body that humans will have after the resurrection. So if, if humans, or if Christ had served Satan, um, and um, in order to give us the sense that we have perfect control or power over things, it would once again just reduce us to what's human. It would have taken away the miraculous um, um, and mystery and the whole element of faith that there is something greater beyond that's a part of our life. And the third temptation, remember, was the Satan taking him to the um, temple and saying, throw yourself off. If you're God, the angels will catch you. Um, and Christ's answer was, God said you do not tempt the Lord your God. Um, and, and once again, we see that if Christ had given in to that, um, he would have put us in a position of using him for whatever we wanted to tempt him, to try him. Um, we're asked not to uh, presume on God, not to speak for Him, to know that we're in a mystery, to, to, to see that that's a good thing for us, not to take Him for granted. Um, um, so once again, he, um, he, um, he did everything He could to, pr to protect everything that was human in us that had a divine aspect. Because every one of those temptations would have taken away that divine aspect and left us on the lowest part of ourselves. 
And remember, I've been saying from the beginning, even Aristotle and Plato, the modern world has lost it, but Aristotle and Plato recognized that there was a divine element to man, to human character. Aristotle said, if you, if you reduce man to what's only animal, to what's only human, you'll consign him to the worst miseries because he knew that there was a transcendent element, something above time that we always relate to. Is it, the, is it theosis? Theosis? I don't know. Is it, what does it say? What's the definition? Theosis um, is the transforming effect of divine grace that leads to... I thought that there was... The, oh, it is, it is, it is, it's the... It, it is, sorry, I'm just, boy, this is bad. <coughs> sorry. I think it's theosis in the... I think that's the original... Sorry, you guys, theos. Yep, it's turning into God, theosis. God, this transformation into something divine. Thanks, Doc. What was it we were doing last class? I'd been going on and on and talking about one person when it was another. It's getting worse and worse. Pray for me, please, you guys. Um, you do uh, great. Huh? You do great. <laughs> You're being kind. No. You're being great. your wife more than you. <laughs> we both need it. I think I can say so. Um, Doc, you want to give your example? I thought was, we were talking about this the other night at dinner. You want to give your example of um, presuming on God? The guy with Katrina? What? The guy with Katrina? Oh, it, I'm sure you guys have all heard it. It's the, the story of the guy who's... Um, being told to evacuate when Katrina hits, and he says, "Nope, not going anywhere. God's going to take care of me." And let God do it. Um, and the water comes up to his house, and they send boats. Send a boat, and he says, "Nope, not going anywhere. God's going to take care of me." And then it goes through his house, and he gets up on the roof, and they send a helicopter, and he says, "Nope, God's going to take care of me." Um, and so he doesn't get saved and he dies and he goes to St. Peter or God or whoever um, and says, Why, what didn't, is you this? Save Why me? didn't you save me? You said you would. And God said, sent you a boat, <laughs> sent you a helicopter, <laughs> what did you want? <laughs> Wait, I hope everybody, that is a perfect example of what's going on in the temptations. I did this, I did this, I did this. How, how well do people see? Um, anyway, so any comments, again, on the Grand Inquisitor and the temptations before we leave? I, I thought our class last week was particularly good. You guys were reading really well, I thought, last week. You know, I think you gave the best example about the temptations uh, regarding, I mean, when you, because it is part of the Gospels that the priest reads, but I don't think it's ever been explained the way you have explained it to us. Yeah. That if God did submit to those temptations and what the implications right. would be for right. us. And I think that, for me, was awesome to know. Yeah, it's a revelation about us. Yeah. I mean, it says so much about us and what he's trying to protect. If you don't put that out, you don't understand him. And you don't understand, we don't understand ourselves, what we're susceptible to, and what he's 
<laughs> what he's offering himself to do for us. Um, okay. Um, we talked briefly about the implications of this, the temptations, the Grand Inquisitor story for Yvonne, and I don't want to go into it again. He, I, I mean, the most obvious things are um, that he's acutely sensitive to suffering. This is so much like the Job story. Um, when, when Job has everything, everything take, I, I just, the Job study, if you all haven't read it, you should read it. Um, it begins with a dialogue between God and the devil and um, Satan saying, these people are going through the motions. Um, that is, they're living for respectability, for all these outward things. And God has more trust in um, his creatures, in Job. And he lets the devil do what he's going to do. devil takes away absolutely everything. All externals. Because the, the point is, do we really love God because of what he does for us or making our lives comfortable? Or Because it seems to me the ultimate end of our life is getting a reward, I don't think is the best way to put our struggles towards heaven because we keep doing it for something we're, to get out of it. What you see in the Trinity are three persons loving each other freely, wholly. They're absolutely one with each other. That's our end. So the whole struggle for us on earth should be to learn to enter into a oneness with another person, to love and be loved. If the ultimate source, if, the God, if we're made in God's image, and he's the ultimate source of us, we were meant to love and be loved. That means freely. So Satan has his way. He takes everything away from Job. He loses everything and gets angry at God. And there's that one, if you've read it, you know he's telling God what he needs to know. <laughs> Finally, God shuts him up and says, who are you to, you know, and then he has this long, were you there when the, you know, when the foundations were laid? It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful story. This is that story. How can God allow evil to go on in the world? What kind of a God is it? Um, Yvonne is acutely sensitive to pain and suffering. We've read it, you know, the, particularly children, because children are too young to defend themselves or even to know what's going on. Adults are the ones who make the choices. So he's extremely sensitive to suffering, to injustices. And um, if we set him against Alyosha and Dmitri, we see um, that he's very much a modern skeptic. He lives so much in his mind, questioning. Um, his heart is not as large as his head. Almost everything he does is through his powers of reason. And we're going to see the irony of that in a minute because I want to get to that. Um, <clears throat> remember Boethius' answer. And, or, another way of putting this, Ivan is a product of a culture that, that, that lacks a philosophic foundation. The West has had that from the beginning. The great philosophers preceded Christ's advent, later Aristotle, the pre-Socratics, all of them. Boethius comes afterwards, Augustine, Thomas. Boethius' argument is there is no bad fortune. I mean, that's a philosophic argument. Yvonne doesn't know it, or if he, I don't think he, I don't think he knows it, because, but he's a modern skeptic. He does not carry the weight of a tradition. Nobody in Russia can. It's not a part of the Russian tradition. That's Western. So, <coughs> so we're watching a man struggle with the evils of the world, like Job, or even Boethius at the beginning of, without any way of answering them. He has no way. <coughs> Are you 
saying that the Western traditions, they were introduced to at a very late stage. They took almost, I don't know if they took, but that's the right word to say, that they looked at it at face value without any of the backing up information that made them real. Almost almost like, you know, paper tiger kind of thing. I'm sorry, Mark, can I ask you again on that? The, the foundation, of, so what you're saying is the foundation of Western philosophy has thousands of years of things backing it up. Mm -hmm. That in Russia at this time, early 1800s, that the educated people who thought they were educated just took what they were taught. You know, they, 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 they read <coughs> a sentence, but they don't know any of the meaning behind and it. It's not a part of their that. culture, their yeah. history. It's just not, you know, I mean, we, that was one of the reasons for that opening talk I gave on, on uh, um, the czar, Phil, who Peter went, the huh? Peter the Great. Yeah, Peter. Behind my mind, Peter. Peter the, yes, Peter the Great. He's like was it who went west and yeah. was so enchanted, so taken by Western development, it was such a shock to him, and he'd lost two wars, north and south of him, <clears throat> and he saw this technology and imagined the power that Russia could have because of how fast it was, and brought it all back. So. What he entered, what happens here is a relative short duration. It's not a product of centuries of growing organically. It's it's sudden. It's it's um, it's arbitrary. It's art, it's artificial in some ways. Um, I asked this qu question um, about the attitude towards the Catholic Church, and I'm going to ask if everybody just hold questions here because I know this is going to stir or could stir up a hornet's nest, and I don't want to do that the attitudes towards um, the Catholic Church that Yvonne has. Let me just offer a, some speculation and, and leave it at that. I'm, I'm not making a claim for any authority on this at all. Um, but I'd like to just offer this to, to, to try to deal with that aspect of the Grand Inquisitor. Um, if, you look at, if you look at Russia at this time, it's really interesting to see that a couple of things are going on. One is that, um, that the tradition of the elders is fading. We know that from the story. Zosimov, and I'm, I'll read it, I think it's one of the chapters we're going to look at tonight, does everything he can to exalt that tradition because he believes that it, it's only with that tradition that the people will become what they can, even, even though the sh book shows people are basically scoundrels. But there's a distinction between a monk Zosim is a monk, and the other monks in the monastery, and the priests. In our book, the, the word is used, um, hiero, hiero monk. I think it was hiero monk, mm -hmm. <clears throat> which means priest. And generally, in a monastic life, you've got brothers who are not ordained. They cannot administer sacraments. The sacraments are not a part of their life <coughs> unless, <coughs> unless there's a priest present or unless somebody's been given a dispensation to give them. But we know from the book that there, we don't see, a, there's that one mention of that woman who tended towards hysterics, taking the Eucharist and quieting. But um, the women come and confess to Zosma. They don't confess to a priest. There's a sense in which, because a monk retires from the world, that is, gift, this is what, at the center of this tension, people are too much given by the world, they're caught up in it. The monastic tradition separates itself from the world. So the people who go there fast and they pray. So the assumption is they're not under the influence of the world the way other people are. We know that in the book that's a lie. Fairpont fasts all the time and he's a scoundrel. I mean we have to wonder whether he's not 
demonic in some ways. I mean, that's one of the questions that Dostoevsky raises. But there's a difference between a monk and a priest. And this tradition of the elders, the monks, is fading. It's giving way to this changing world. The sacraments are not a part of it. Um, so um, the situation that we're experiencing right now is the product of, of centuries of tensions between East and West. We've gone over this. Remember, 330, the center of the empire moved from Rome to Constantinople, which was Greek. So Latin and Greek worlds were in tension with each other from that point forward. Um, Boethius was um, a victim of that conflict. He was falsely executed, accused, um, because of circumstances that grew out of that. That tension between East and West, between the um, Latin and Greek worlds, existed up to the schism in the 11th century. I think 1054 was when um, the, the East broke from on the basis of the um, filioque. I myself don't believe that schism took place just because of the filioque. The political differences between the two worlds were vast. So in Russia, you've got something that's similar to all the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox world. Um, 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 Turkish Orthodox, Armenian Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, you, you name it. All those Orthodox worlds have a kind of autonomy so they lack the unity of a popa ahead. And the cultures are left to grow pretty much um, on their own. And, it, and we know, I mean, there's a, I think there's a current dispute going on between two of the Orthodox countries who don't allow communion, intercommunion, with their people. I think it's the Turks and Armenians, I'm not sure which. So we're looking at a world that in some respects resembles the Protestant world, where you've got this um, People are left, people like Zosima are left to grow into this condition of holiness. And in Zosima's case, I, I think it's deep and genuine. He's a, he's a profoundly holy man. And one of, the, one of the reasons, one of the dramas connected with the monastery is that all of the other monks, and I would think particularly the priest, the only one who's free of it seems to me is Father Casey. Father Fairpont's mean. When Zosima dies, he, he does nothing but heap scorn. He, he take, I mean, he's a vicious man. He takes all the signs of the stench as evidence that Zosima was an evil man. He wants to go in and clean up all the demons. So we see these spiritual excesses. That's a priest, not a monk. And these tensions in the monastic world. So Dostoevsky is laying it bare. He, he doesn't say anything explicitly except with regard to Luther and Calvin, and he's pretty clear that about their heretical nature. But on this larger question, I, I would just like to leave it. It's problematic. It's a difficult question to tackle in the book because he, he doesn't deal with it in any direct. One of the things he does say in the Grand Inquisitor is that when Pepin gave the states to the Pope that were the basis for the papal states, his reading of that was that's another indication of Rome turning the church into a state. It assumes state powers. And, but that's a large, deep, difficult question, okay, problem. Okay, the whole. Mark asked last week, bless his soul, um, <laughs> you know, we were talking, you know, that I, I've um, talked often about um, one of the things that's buried in most works of literature that people very often don't pay any attention to 
is the fact that people don't read very well. They don't see each other very well. Um, and that's true in this book. It's especially true in this book. Um, as I said, the only people who really see to, seem to see are Zosima and Alyosha. And their hearts are, are more involved in a, um, in a detached way. Um, they, don't, they don't let their feelings overcome them the way so many of the characters do. But I want to tackle this whole for a second um, to, to, to see if we can start to put this whole together because I know you're dealing with a lot. Um, so here's, here's the plot, put simply, okay? Now remember, the, the plot is an imitation of an action. So what happens in all these things, every one of these scenes, every one of these scenes, when you put them together, that sequence of events is an imitation, a revelation of an action. So the visible events imitate an invisible action, a movement of spirit. And that's why I say the whole book is about this trial of faith. That's the invisible. Everybody is caught up in the struggle. Everybody. Nobody, nobody can escape it. Um, every story, good stories generally open with a, um, an opening conflict, a problem. And then a complication it leads to a crisis and a denouement and the resolution at the end. I wanted, so that's a, typically a plot, an opening problem, a complication. The crisis of denouement unraveling in the end. So uh, all, sorry, all, um, all literature in a sense is an affirmation of being, of some goodness, even tragedies, because you know that every every good tragedy answers some injustice, some wrong. It, it, the cost of it may be a calamity; people may die. But an injustice is answered, and a preparation is made for a refounding, a renewal. Every trap, every really good trap, Sophocles, Aeschylus, Shakespeare. Um, so every story, in a sense, affirms some good. There's an order. Even if it's dealing with disorder, and the story does, there's, no, there's nothing going on that isn't full of disorders everywhere. <laughs> um, so we've got an opening problem. And then um, I think we've got two, two crises that stand out from everything else. The first one is Alyosha's crisis um, when Zosimov dies and give off, gives off a stench. It, it is a real trial of faith. Um, because he, he, it's, it's really important. He goes through that. It's a test of his faith, and he fails. Um, um, Rakuten uses him badly. When he does, um, but because of what happens between, interestingly, between Alyosha and Grushenka, he returns to the monastery and his faith is renewed. And something happens there. That's where I want to get to today. The second crisis is involves Dmitri um, at the end with Grushenka. Um, these are the two main crises in the story. And what happens at the end, at the end with um, Dmitri and Grushenka, leads both of those characters to a conversion, absolute conversion. During that, during that episode, I, 
I don't think we'll get, we, we'll get to it next week. Grushenka, most of the women here are, are viper figures. They're, they're mean. Um, they turn in each other, they're vicious, there's something mean in what they do with each other. Grushenka admits it in that story, and she comes to a point where she says, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm mean, I'm wicked. Um, but she said, I've never seen myself as clearly before, and I love you. And she turns. Um, we can't make, I mean, we can't romanticize that scene either, because you know that um, when Dimitri's put in jail, or if you're that far, when, she's, when he's put in jail and she goes to visit him, <laughs> she has nothing good to say about this guy. So in this one scene, and remember, she's drunk. I, I don't want to forget that. She declares her love for him, and she is completely humble. And shortly after that scene with him, he says, he said earlier on, remember in that scene we looked at, he says, I'm a spider, I'm an animal. I'm, um, but he will come to a point of realizing um, a lot about himself in that scene. So there's that moment of recognition that's been so important in literature for all, for all of them. One of the serious questions we have to ask is, does Ivan ever undergo a recognition? Alyosha does here, Dimitri does. They see themselves as they are and, and become better characters. Does Ivan ever see himself? Just a question, okay? But that's the plot, okay? Simplified, but it's still, that's, that's the action, okay? Now let me, let me just say a word about that whole, and then I want to just quickly go over some of the episodes. To, Try to put it together and see if I can answer one question. Can I ask answer. one question? Ahead, yeah. Repeat again about loving in a detached way. What were you saying about that? I don't know how to. If um, love is an emotion, it's a passion. Mm -hmm. So it's a it's an act of the will towards. It's not the mind grasping something. It's the will moving. Mm -hmm. Emotions mean motions. Mm -hmm. It's the will, feelings or emotions mm -hmm. going. And we know from the characters how passionate they are. Mm -hmm. They act on their passions all the mm -hmm. time. Love is a passion, it's an emotion, it's a movement towards. Um, so its movement is to become one with the good of another. That's what love is. Right. Not for ourselves. Um, what we learn from the book, I think we all know it from our own lives, that there's something selfish in us as fallen human beings. So many of the emotions that we express are too often for ourselves. That's true of all the, all the characters here. Or, Maybe, except maybe for Sassamad and Aliyosha, but... So people are moved by their emotions. Um, Kolka is the one who says, it's important to love somebody, but in an attached way. And I think he's a spokesman for Dostoevsky because it's a way of describing Alyosha and Zosimov, that they love, but it's not for themselves. Mm, that they, makes sense. They step... Because the danger is we can love the, I mean, what we, we can love the wrong way for the wrong reasons. Right. Um, Ivan's going to say to Katrina, who keeps declaring her love for Dimitri, he's saying, you don't love him. You love yourself because you want to exalt this sense that you have that you're going to save somebody's life. So she's really doing it in her own pride. If you were to say you don't love him, she would have said, absolutely not. You're absolutely wrong. But it's not true. Um, she loves for herself and doesn't know it. She's going to undergo a serious change, too. But love, but not for themselves. In other words, I, I think I'm getting it. I'm getting it. It's a, in some sense, it's like it's a contradiction in terms, because you have to go out. You have to go out 
to give yourself to another. But the danger is, for any of us, can we do that free of our own egos, free of our own self? <laughs> it's ma not making it about us. Not the making it about another. Okay, yeah. not making it about yeah. us. And in that sense, what we see in the book is almost everybody in the book is blind. They don't read. They just don't see that fault. So here, so here's the whole. I want to present it in a little bit more detail. The book begins with just the narrator introducing us to the Karmazov family. And what we learn is how, um, I, don't, I, I, I hate the word dysfunctional. It, it's, um, it, I mean, it's sad. It's, I mean, the, the father knows nothing about his kids. The kids know nothing about their father or each other. They love their second mother. All of them were very tender about her because she was a very tender woman. And Fyodor abused both of his wives. So the, the family has not grown up with any sense of integrity in what went on, which is not an uncommon thing. I mean, so, and over and over again, we keep getting the son saying to each other, I'm a Karamazov, I'm a Karamazov. That is, they all share our, the fall. I mean, a Christian should easily accept that, even though I don't think we do in a world, but none of them denies the fall. They all know that there's something wrong. And every, I'm still reading towards the end. Yvonne hasn't done it yet. Dimitri um, and Alyosha do admit that they are the worst of the worst, that they are in sin, uh, that they are Karmazov. So we're shown this family. So he gives us a general picture of a family, and then he gives us general pictures of the sexes and the monastic life. Because we go to the monastic life, and you know that the men and women line up in groups. We already talked about that. So he's giving us a picture of sexual differences in those openings. But then what he proceeds to do is go into the lives of individual people and, and work out what he's given us a glimpse of in the beginning. Okay? And what he makes clear is really interesting. He makes it clear, this is the whole, he makes it clear that there's no way to understand an individual, not a family or an individual, apart from his immediate community, his family, the, the village community life, and the nation at large. Because whatever's going on is a part of something larger. And I, I want to underscore this. There's no way to read this book and see it. Because as soon as we get to Lisa, we get to her, her mother, other characters, her ambitions, the, the men who you know, want to make a move on her. We're in a much larger world. If you think about therapy today going on in our country, it tends to be individual or it tends to be the family. In both of those ways, it has no sense of a larger culture, of larger cultural problems going on that are at work in an individual or a family. So the individual is missing something. Even in a family, you're missing something. That's, I mean, that's, you can see it's Jewish character. It's ties to the Old Testament. That, Mother and father, sins of the father. Dostoevsky is showing us that there's no way to understand the predicament of any human being without seeing them in terms of this larger picture. So that's why he's called the father of Russia. That's why this is such a hard novel, because we're being asked to see, if you were to go to Hemingway, if Scott Fitzgerald, Stein, I mean, you name it, you'll get a community, you will get it, but you'll not get a nation in this kind of depth. Um, that's why, I mean, it's, it's, it's a difficult book to read anyway, 
it gets denser because you're trying to hold on to a lot more as you go along. It's just a lot to hold on to. So the whole in, in Dostoevsky is rich and profound. And it, to me, it's a more profound treatment of human character because I think it's more real. That there's something to be said for our ties with each other or individual problems we all have because we all have them. There's something to be said for the disorders in our families. I think we all have them. There's also something to be said for larger currents and very often we're just not aware of them. You can't read this book without realizing we're in a larger world, there's a lot more going on here. So that's the whole, okay? And what's at issue are the, the sources of tension are the sexual differences between men and women. It's been a major theme in every work we've read. The difficulty in, in reconciling parts of the soul, bringing the passions under control, because in this book, there's almost nobody who isn't caught in a conflict between the intellect and the passions. It defines all. It defines almost every scene. Um, getting those two things together. Remember, I quoted C.S. Lewis, who was quoting Plato. Um, the problem is how reason can control the appetites, these drives for physical things, through that middle element, the heart, the affections. The great problem facing man is trying to develop ordinate, this is St. Augustine, the problem for us is trying to develop ordinate loves, loves that are lawful. Because so often our loves are, we think we love well, but we often see we don't love as, you know, the way we, certainly not the way Christ asks. That's the whole call of Christianity. So we went from the opening to the monastery dealing with men and women we went to the scene um, involving Dimitri with Alyosha, and it's in that scene that Dimitri declares himself this insect, this bug. He's disgusted with himself because we learn from the story that he tells that he, he betrayed Katrina, he took her money, he couldn't go back to her because he knew if he did, because she was such a proud woman, that she would greet him with disdain. She'd treat him like a dog. Um, and we know the pride between both of them. Katrina keeps that pride for most of the She's a very, very proud woman. Demetria keeps his pride. He's a man of honor. It's what leads him to want to take his life eventually. It's in that scene that Alyosha says, I'm the same as you. I'm a Karamazov. They have that meeting at the home with Grigory, Smirjikov, and um, um, Ivan. Um, and it's in that scene that Smirjikov is teasing mercilessly Grigory. Um, he's, it's, just, it's an amazing scene. He's, he's an example of what we're talking about. He's a modern man who hates Russians, who wants to pride himself on his intellect, being cunning. And he uses this rationalistic argument with a peasant man who can't use his reason to answer him. Mm -hmm. And he's making him angrier and angrier. He says, um, you can't make faith the basis of your life, because if faith were real, as Christ presents you, you'd say, if your life were in danger, move that mountain, and it would move. And he says, it's not going to happen. People don't have faith like that. He's just teasing him mercilessly. And he says, even if, even if I did believe it at some point, if I saw I was wrong, I could repent and I'd be forgiven. So he's using all of these casuistic arguments to, to, um, to frustrate this old man. So he's, a, he's an image of the modern intellect in the way he can take his intellect and hurt somebody who doesn't have those intellectual capabilities. Ivan, or Dimitri breaks in, you know, and he... Um, kicks the old man, he's looking for Grushenko and he doesn't find him. The scene ends with Ivan looking at horror at what his brother has just done with their father 
and says, Viper will eat Viper. In the next scene, we watch the two women become vipers to each other. And it's, a, it's, a, it's underscored with a spirit of viciousness. Katrina loves um, Dimitri. And she knows that Dimitri is attracted to Grushenka. Grushenka's with her, and she prides herself on warming up to the woman. And Alyosha comes in, Grushenka comes out from behind the wall, and, and um, Katrina's going, look how good she is, what a beautiful woman. And she takes her hand and kisses her hand. And um, Grushenka puts out her hand, or, or Katrina puts out her hand as if Grushenka's going to take it and kiss it. And it's as if she makes the gesture to do it and then pulls back. She's just teasing. And then she prides herself on not doing it and being able to go around the town and saying, Katrina kissed my hand, but I didn't kiss hers. And that scene ends with Katrina just livid in rage, calling her vicious and mean. And so if you look at those scenes, there, there's almost not a scene we can watch without seeing people don't see each other, they don't understand who they are, and they can't relate to them on a level human to human. It's a world in which the human nature gives ways to animal, insects, vipers, snakes. Um, and faith is a real issue. Katrina presents herself as if she did something really trustworthy. We know that she did that for herself. She did not do that because she loved Grishenka. She did it to get her out of the way. But she's putting on this appearance of what a good woman she is. Look how gracious and you know, courteous she is. So scene after scene after scene, we're watching human beings miss um, each other. Alicia returns to the monastery. It's there where Fairpont describes the demons. He says there are demons everywhere, remember. Um, and we get um, a manipian view of monastic life, that things are not as peaceful as they think. That spiritual demons, that there, there's envies, a pride in what people do, um, that even though on the surface people come to the monastery for prayer, and the, there's lots more going on behind the scenes that we don't see until then. Alisha gets um, involved with the schoolboys. Remember, Ilyusha thro throws rocks at him because it was his brother, Dimitri, who humiliated his father. Alyosha knows nothing about it. He doesn't see the boy. He doesn't know how to relate to him. Later, he will go to the house. Katrina will give him money to pay the, to help. It's her way of declaring her love for Dimitri because he caused the humiliation. She wants Alyosha to take money to the captain and give it to him. He goes outside with the captain. The captain is overjoyed because the money will take care of their poverty. But he reaches a point. He's a man of honor. He reaches a point and knows that he does it. His, he'll be humiliated in front of his son. So he has to turn it down. Um, and then there's that meeting with uh, um, between Alyosha and Lisa where they declare their love, and we've already gone through that. It's, it's one of the few scenes in the story in which characters completely drop their guard. It's less a problem for Alyosha. He, he's just who he is. He's just a, he's, he's not doing things for himself. He's just a, he's showing the influence of Zosimov in life, so he tends to be really good. But she has had a problem. She wrote this letter declaring her love. She doesn't want to admit it um, because it would make her vulnerable. We've, we went through this. Mm -hmm. But the two engage um, themselves, commit themselves um, to marriage. 
And it's left that way when we go into the Grand Inquisitor. And that's where we stopped last week. So that's, so my suggestion is here. In fact, this is, this is where I wanted to put this on the whole. Mm -hmm. If you watch, if you look at the whole, you're, I mean, obviously you guys are halfway through it, or some of you are done. Um, but if you, if you watch things developing, we're watching a whole culture struggle, struggle in terms of its own culture. They're Russians, they're very passionate, they're very romantic. Um, but all of these Western influences are coming in and it's setting up these fractures, these conflicts. We're watching all of them build to these two crises and the Grand Inquisitor. That's a major, that's a major chapter in the book because it, it goes to something beyond surface appearances. We, we go to Christ and the reasons he did something. The, for the most part, people aren't aware. What's going to happen from this point onward is going to become sinister. That suddenly, all these characters are going to have to deal with dark forces, and it's going to be produced, it's going to intensify what I've been calling this trial of faith. And I don't want to go into the details of it, let me just give you one. When we come out of the Grand Inquisitor and um, Alyosha visits Lisi, she said, I'm glad I broke off with you. She breaks off. If, if you haven't read it yet, it's, it's, a painful, it's a painful scene. She just reached a point in her life which was huge for her because she came out from behind her mask. She made herself vulnerable. She said, what I said in the letter was really real, even though it's been hard for her to admit that. And Alyosha, you know, we read it. Alyosha says, I knew it was real. And she says, oh, you know it was real, did you? And she, you know, she's plainfully treating him as if he's above her. But she accepts it, and they do it in a playful way. They move on. In the very next scene when we see the two of them, she pulls out from the engagement, and she gets mean. She gets vicious. Um, and when he leaves, um, she puts her hand on the door and slams her the door on her finger to smash it. I couldn't read that episode without thinking of the way sometimes young women do cuttings. If you grow, I'm really saying, I, this, it troubles me to watch it. If you grow up in a culture that denies sin, and women generally are more susceptible, I think, emotionally, I mean, generally speaking, it's one of the differences between us. If you're a young girl growing up in a, in a culture in, in which sin is denied, what do you do with your own sins? I asked this question earlier with the Manipian satire thing. If you live in a society in which radical changes are being made, what do you do? What's right? How do you, by what standard do you judge yourself anymore? What it does is produce this buffoonery. What do you, what do, you do? What's right? And I, and I ask that question because I think societies are often undergoing changes like that. People put on personas because they're not quite sure what to do. You're a little bit lost. And I said, in that context, what is the one thing that's never changing? It's Christ. So what's going on in so many of these stories we're reading is we're watching cultures living by standards. The Iliad started it. Living by some code that's out of tune with the divine order. The whole problem of the book is for people to bring itself back into order with or yeah, back into attunement with this divine order. And that's what's going on here. 
And Lisi, I mean, I just, it was painful to watch. I was thinking about young women who do these cuttings, you know. And to, I mean, she's got this horrible sense of self-disgust, self-loathing. She has to hurt herself because she knows she's wretched. She knows she's wrong. Um, there's nothing she can do about it except wound herself. That's the beginning of, of what's going to become sinister. Because if you've read on, you know that um, Yvonne's going to meet with Smerdjikov. I can't tell you what happens. I cannot tell you. But we're, we're going to be getting close to the demonic. In the chapter that involving Lisi, it's called A Little Demon. Um, at the end of the sessions involving Yvonne with Smerdjikov, a devil, an actual devil, is going to enter this world. What's that? A devil? What did you say when that was going to happen? A devil is going to enter the world. When? When? Oh, read on. <laughs> oh, I know, but I thought you were giving it. It's after, it's after the exchanges between Yvonne and Smerdjikov. Okay. Okay. So the point I want to make here is that after this crisis, I mean, everything up, up to this point is showing us a world. But what's going to happen after the Grand Inquisitor is things are going to get really, really dark. We're going to enter a dark world, and people are going to have to deal with dark things. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> what did you do? I said I can't read at night. No. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll make up our spare bedroom. <laughs> okay, let me stop. Any? I want to. I want to look at the. Um, I want to look at the Zosma section very, very quickly. Any? Any questions about the overall plot and what's happening? Where we're going? This cheerful. <laughs> Remember what I said earlier, you guys. This book is a is a book of genuine hope. Absolutely. Well, I'm not. Uh, well, I'm not kidding. The the cost of hope sometimes is that we don't really appreciate unless we go through hard things and re-examine things and look at things and turn to God. I mean, that's what Lent is. So. Any any questions about Catherine? Yeah. Uh, kind of going back to what you were talking uh, earlier about detachment and um, I think dark forces uh, I need. Bishop Zaren, oh, you and some? he always refers to love as um, willing the good of the other for the sake of the other. Right. And is that a, the form of detachment that you were talking about? Because it's really, you love the person, but it's not for any personal Right. Yeah, you have to put yourself away to. I mean, that the ultimate. The ult, just leave it there, Doc. Thanks. The ultimate image for us is Christ. I mean, that's why. And I, I've said this before. I hope everybody hears this, because you know how seriously I take this stuff. I believe we have two wounds. Two wounds. One of our wounds is from the fall. We can, that's that's in our world. I think a world that denies sin is doing itself more harm than it knows. If we don't have a healthy admission of sin, I just think it, it, it doesn't help us much. So one of our wounds is the effect of the fall. We lost paradise, we lost God in some way, and we carry that. I think the other wound we carry is that in our struggles to love, we're so often aware of how, how far short we fall, that we don't love well. He did, he was a God, and he brought a human life. That's what's so extraordinary about Christianity. It, it showed that man is, is capable, it, it's so, so far away from Yvonne's picture of the world, that humans are capable of 
this extraordinary divine quality following Christ. We're also capable of being worse than animals. I mean, that's his argument, that when we do something bad, it's far worse than anything the animals can do. But there's this, that, that he would have done this for us and ask us to follow him, to struggle. I would say, if you read this book, all the characters who are struggling with twisted things are far more human than the functionaries who think they have all the answers to things and don't even see. They can't, they're not even struggling with love. They're in, this, they're in this intellectual, technical world with all the answers. Um, we, we never see them struggling with something. So what Dostoevsky is showing us are peop is people struggling with <coughs> love, faith, you know, and, and the cost of it. It's not nice, it's not neat. Christ didn't go to a cross because the world didn't need it. You know, he was dealing with demonic forces. <coughs> because the, the origins of our revolt, at least according to our faith, is the angels. And I've said this a number of times. I, I just think it's foolish to tempt Satan. He's the intellectual light, supreme. You know, I, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to go. I wouldn't want to go into battle against him. I mean, whatever knowledge I have, uh, whatever knowledge I possess, it, it can't come close to that guy's. So love is loving for the good of another, but for Christ it was, you know, taking on all these sins. So that's that's the struggle I think we're we're witnessing or a part of in this story. Let's turn to the Zosima biography. I'm gonna go through some of these here. In the the few chapters before the Zosima section you remember that Ivan meets Smerdyakov, and the two have a conversation about Ivan's leaving town, um, and his father asks him to um, to, um, to 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 handle a business deal for him. So he originally was going to go to Moscow, and then um, his father asked him to go to um, Cherdmashnya. Um, a little village town and, and close a deal for him. And Smirjikov makes it clear that he would rather he went there too. The interesting thing about that scene is Smirjikov is, is asking Ivan if it wouldn't be better to go to the closer town. And he also begins talking, he, he, he's very honest about the fear that he says he feels because it, his father, or Fyodor and um, Dmitri have, um, have threatened him with his life. And he's susceptible to epileptic fits. And he says he believes he's going to have a fit when Ivan's gone. And you know that you can't predict them. So Ivan's puzzled. Now, I don't want to go into this because lots is going to happen that looks back to this chapter. But did any of you have any sense of something strange going on in that chapter? Karen, go. What is it? Well, it's for that same reason. You can't predict when you'll have an epileptic fit. Yeah. Anything else? What about the tone in Smerdyakov, the way he talks about everything mm. he talks about? He's a creep. 
Yeah. No, you're he right is, on. But why do you say that? I mean, flesh that out. What's he's sm he smirk. He's, he talks with, um, talks down. I can't. What's the word? Condescending and yeah. cocky and. Yep. Yeah. Full of himself. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> it's really subtle too. Anybody else? Before we go, I don't want to spend a lot of time. We're going to have to come back to this at another point, but everything that he does makes it clear or insinuates that something's up and Yvonne knows about it. That somehow they're in league. I wanted that you, you, I can't, this has got to be underlined. One of the most important things about this is that uh, if you look at all the characters in this book, Yvonne is the one who seems to be superior to everybody else intellectually. That he sees with the depth of perception, the depth of understanding other people's don't have. He's very keen intellect. He can argue. Um, and yet, something's going on, and he seems not to have a clue. Remember when he gets on the, on the carriage, um, Smirnikov comes up and says, was very, it's always nice talking to an intelligent man. And, and the irony is, he's talking to a man who's understood to be very intelligent, who has no clue that something's going on. It's really important to hold, it's absolutely, absolutely important to hold on to that. Because we, we've got a character who prides himself in his ability to see things intellectually, and yet something's happen, happening and he cannot see it at all. At all. So think about that blindness for Yvonne here, what it's going to mean later in the book. Um, turn to page 285. This is, um, so right here in the middle of the book, we get um, a section that breaks the chronological sequence of events. What the narrator gives us is a written account that Alyosha has of um, Zosimon and his life. Um, in the opening, we get Zosimov um, trying to teach his um, fellow monks um, and Alyosha, and he, he explains why he's taking such a fondness to this young man, because most people don't understand how he can feel the way that he does towards him. And he tells the story of his own brother, um, who looked like Alyosha, who was a disbeliever, who grew up atheistic, who didn't believe in God, and then becomes sick and has a conversion and becomes this extraordinary instrument of God. He's just a young kid of peace, and he passes on this love to his brother when he dies and says, live this. And it, it, it has a lasting effect on um, Zosima on page 285. Um, I sent you to him, Alexei, because I thought your brotherly continence would help him, but everything is from the Lord and all our fates as well. This is Pacey speaking to Alyosha about um, Zosimon. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, and bite it alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Remember that, and you, Alexei, I have blessed in my thoughts many times in my life for your face. He knows what Zosimon wants. So he's going to carry out Zosimon's wish to help this kid get out of the world, but prepare him for everything that he's going to have to face as a kid when he enters this world. But Zosima has already told him, remember, leave the monastery, leave, go out into the world. Page 287, um, we're getting the story as 
how the ocean rooted down. Beloved fathers and teachers, I was born in a remote northern province in the town of V of a noble father. Um, here he tells the story of his brother Markel and what happened, um, the death and, um, and the calling that it led to. He talks about the importance of learning scripture. He says in 291, um, he's encouraging all the monks and all of the people who are influenced by him to take scripture seriously. Um, middle of the page, um, a young man walked out in the middle of the church with a big book so big it seemed to me he even had difficulty carrying it and he placed it on the analogy opened it and began to read and suddenly then for the first time I understood something for the first time in my life I understood what was read in God's church and he goes on um, um, to talk about its effect on him and how it's helped him see the good in the world on page 292 a few lines down here the creators in the first day of creation crowning each day with praise that which I have created is good looks at Job and again praises his creation you remember Job was tested. He had to get all externals in order to see who he really was as a, as a creation of God. Um, he says on 293 that wherever there's wrong in the world, it's our fault. Um, loving these, this is 293 in the middle, loving these words yourself and only stopping every once in a while to explain some word that a simple person would not understand. Do not worry. They will understand everything. The orthodox heart will understand everything. Read to them of Abram. He goes on and lists the, um, the books. Going over 294. Do you think that a simple man will not understand? Try reading to him further the touching and moving story of beautiful Esther and the arrogant um, Vashti, or the wondrous tale of the prophet Jonah and the belly. Or should you forget the parables of the Lord chosen mainly from the Gospel of Luke? That is what I did. And then Saul's conversion from the Acts of the Apostles. That is a must, a must. And finally also from the lives of the saints, at least the life of Alexei, a man of God, and the greatest of the great, the joyful sufferer, God-seer, seer, and Christ-bearer, our mother Mary of Egypt. She's the height of it all because she bore him. Whoever does not believe in God will not believe in the people of God. But he who believes in the people of God will also see their holiness even if he did not believe in it before. Only the people and their future spiritual power will convert our atheists who have severed themselves from their own land. And what is the word of Christ without an example? The people will perish without the word. This is a calling. He's saying, Zosmus said, leave the monastery, go out into the world. This is a teacher saying, if you're going to go out into the world, this is what you have to take. This, people are starving for this. Feed them. Um, oh, let's see. Um, he meets this. He and his um, father, Anfin, were, remember, walking all over Russia, and then they were joined by this young man, about 18 or so, at the bottom of 294. I saw with what a tender and clear gaze he looked before him. It was a bright, still, warm July night. The river was wide, a refreshing mist rose from it. Once in a while, a fish would splash softly, the birds fell silent. All was quiet, gracious, all praying to God. And only the two of us, myself and this young man, were still awake when we got to talking about the beauty of the world of God. 
and about its great mystery. For each blade of grass, each little bug, ant, golden bee, knows its way amazingly. Being without reason, they witness to the divine mystery. They ceaselessly enact it. That is, if they're creations by the word, they are all speaking. Each one is being what it was given to be. Um, the reason that directs it, if you remember the passage I quoted from St. Thomas, the reason that directs all these things to lack reason is the reason of God. It's behind everything. Man is different. He has a degree of freedom because he has rational powers and a free will. He told me how he loved the forest and the forest birds. He was a bird catcher. He knew their every call and could lure any bird. I don't know of anything better than the forest, he said, though all things are good. Truly, all things are good and splendid because all is truth. They go on like this. Go down a few lines. But can it be said that they too have Christ? The lad asked. How could it be otherwise? I said to him. For the word is for all, all creation and all creatures. Every little leaf is striving towards the word. Sings the glory to God. Weeps to Christ unbeknownst to itself. Doing so through the mystery of its sinless life. <coughs> It's so beautiful. Yeah. I, I'd like to go back, but I'm not going to do it. If you go back to that passage, the, um, the chapter dealing with um, Fairpont, at the bottom of that page, remember when it talks about um, Zosima, his teaching with, to everybody then was he said, I'm the worst of the worst, and, if you, if, and all of you are the worst of the worst. If you've come here and not learned that more and more, the longer you stay here, then you don't belong here. He's saying to be a monk, a priest, you have to see yourself as the worst or you will not be able to bring love to people who put yourself above them. Remember, that's what Misu was doing in the opening and um, Fyodor, when, um, when Zosimov said to Fyodor, do not be ashamed. When Misu was doing everything he could to distance himself because he was so self-conscious about his appearances, he didn't want to be associated with this guy. Zasima was not embarrassed at all, because he wasn't bound by social appearances. Um, you remember what happens. Um, he, um, remember he, he, he enters the um, army, and he becomes taken with this beautiful young woman and thinks that she loves him, he leaves for a while and come back to come back and discovers she's married. He's so humiliated, he thinks everybody's laughing. That's his own self-consciousness. There's no evidence of that. Um, he comes back and he wants revenge. On page 297, he's carrying around this fit of jealousy. And remember, we've been talking about how blind people are. Think about how well any of us can see in jealousy. He's carrying this insult around. His servant comes up to him and he slaps him in the face. 297 towards the body. I got angry with my orderly of fantasy and struck him twice in the face with all my might so that his face was all bloody. He'd been long in my service. I had occasion to strike him before yet never with such beastly cruelty. And believe me, my dears, though it was 40 years ago, I still remember it with shame and anguish. He couldn't sleep that night. He says, next page, 298, um, my good ones, my dears, why are you serving me? Why do you love me? And I'm worthy of being served. Yes, I am worthy. Suddenly leaped into my mind. Indeed, how I deserve that another man just like me 
the image and likeness of God. Now remember, the serfs have been emancipated. Um, it's, so it's, it's one of the revolutions going on, but there are still these tendencies to see the serfs as belonging to an inferior class. He treats him that way, slaps him, but it has a bitter effect on him. He realizes how wrong he was. Um, he apologizes to the serf, and the serf doesn't know how to take it. Um, at the bottom of 298, I threw myself at his feet with my forehead to the ground. Forgive me, I said. At that he was completely astounded. Your honor, my dear master, but how can you? I'm not worthy. Both of them were looking at each other and saying, I'm not worthy. Obviously for different sets of emotions, but... He goes into the duel with this new sense of himself. It's as, it's as if he has become aware, been made aware, that it's, it's his calling to serve. And to do that, Eric, this goes to your question, Julie, um, he has to get past his own ego. Now imagine how much your ego would come into play if you're a soldier in an in a, a, a armor, I mean in a platoon, an army, and all of your comrades who are, or think about themselves going into war and facing an enemy and dying, having the courage to die, they watch one of their own members go into this duel, let the guy take a shot, and then throw away the gun. Because everybody in his platoon was humiliated. They thought he dishonored them um, and let them down, that he showed how cowardly he was. Um, but it becomes clear, particularly by some of the other men, that he wasn't a coward because he let the guy take the first shot before he threw the pistol away. And I hope that's crucial to everybody. He had to do that, to take that away. Um, and then the word gets around um, the town, the women are overwhelmed. <coughs> Finally, most of the men in the, in, the, in, the, um, in the regiment, or lots of them come around too and see him as a hero. So a change is taking place, even in the army. He's getting all this attention, and one night a visitor comes to him who says to him, 303, Zosimov um, is taken with this guy because he seems very holy, very mature, and insightful, and he has a, um, a grave calm to him that's unusual. And the man talks of it, he says um, he, he was taken with what Zosimov did and wants to come and talk with him about it. He says at 303 at the top, been thinking about, I've been thinking about for a long time, uh, that is I think, that is all I think about. He looked at me, I'm convinced of it, he said, more than you are. You shall found out, find out why later on. I listened and thought to myself, surely he wants to reveal something to me. Paradise, he said, is hidden in each one of us. It is concealed within me too right now, and if I wish, he will come to me in reality tomorrow even and for the rest of my life. Something strange is going on with this man. He continues to visit with him until one day on one of his visits he makes a confession and says to Zosima that he killed somebody. And he's been carrying around the guilt of it I think for 14 years. Bottom of 304. What's the matter, I said, are you ill? He had been complaining precisely of a headache. I, do you know, I killed a person. He said it and smiled, and his face was white as chalk. Why is he smiling? The thought suddenly pierced my heart. Even before I had understood him, I turned pale myself. He tells him the story that he'd loved this woman and became so jealous of, of her that he snuck into her um, bedroom one night and killed her and took things to cover his tracks to make it look like somebody else did. The servant is found drunk with blood on his sleeve, 
the next day, and the <laughs> talk about class prejudice. The assumption is he was the murderer. They don't have enough evidence. This is so crucial because it's going to interrogations. Now think about the interrogations that implicit or explicit have been going on. This is a major one. They assume this guy is guilty and accuse him. He will die a couple of days later. So the real murderer, this stranger, is left with the guilt on his conscience and he goes forward for 14 years until this moment. And then he finally says to Zosimo, he will, he will make a confession. He will make a clean breast of it. But he doesn't do it. Days pass and he keeps saying he will do so. Um, and one day he leaves and comes back returning as if he'd forgotten something and then leaves again and then on the day of his birthday he announces the fact to his family. So they accused the, the serf, the servant, wrongly, he died. Um, now he confesses to the sin and even though he gives them evidence which can't be connected with anybody else except himself, they deny the truthfulness and say he's mad and let him go. Um, so in one sense he's exonerated because he finally made a confession. The awkwardness is nobody, no, here, reading, nobody would see it. It would be too humiliating for the family, culturally it would be embarrassing, humiliating. Um, but he dies and he, before, that, before that happens, remember he comes to Alyosha, he says, you remember when I came back that evening, do you know why I came back? And Alyosha doesn't know, he says, I came back to kill you. That's how much he didn't not want. Huh? Uh, that's how much he did not want to live with the fact that somebody else knew. Um, now, chapter three, we get all these homilies, and the, the I don't want to go into them, but they are they are Zosima's preaching. So immediately the God, now after this story, um, um, Zosima's narrative continues. The narrative that Alyosha gives the narrator um, with homilies, speaking the word of God, what people have to take seriously, and um, and after after that's completed, we get um, bringing the history of Zosima up to date. The account ends, and we're taken back to the cell in which where Zosima's body is lying, and Corruption is coming up. And you know what happens here. All of the all the monks except Pacey, Father Pacey, turn on him and use the stench as evidence um, that he was a mean man, evil man, actually evil. It's at this point that um, that um, Zosimi becomes disillusionment, he loses his faith, and he's leaving the monastery when Rakuten comes along and is grateful for the opportunity. He takes him to Grishenka's thinking, because Alyosha's in despair, that Grishenka will make love and he'll lose his innocence. So he, he's trying demonically to bring him down. They go and Grishenka sits on his lap, it's a teasing sort of thing. is completely comfortable with her and then Rakuten, interestingly, tells Grishenka why Alyosha's so sad and she learns why, he's, why he carries the sadness, and she feels sorry for him. And then she tells the story, because she expresses her love for him, and it says it's always been embarrassing for her to be around him, because he always made her feel her unworthiness. 
Um, she tells the story of the onion, this legend, because she says she just gave an onion to Alyosha in the, in the affection she showed him. She tells him the story of this woman who was damned to hell, and an angel came to save her, gave her an onion. And other people in the burning lake were reaching up, and she started to pull them out, thinking that it was a good offer that she would help them. So one person grabbed on and she was pulling, another grabbed on and another. Finally the weight became too much that she dropped it and let it go. And when that happened, she goes to hell. That's, and, not, that's not. Huh? That's not the crux of that. What? But you just said go ahead. not the crux of the story. Go ahead. The angel is going to pull out this lady. Right. She has whatever mercy for this woman and she's going to save her. Right. The thing is, as she's being pulled out, other people want to be pulled out too. Right. And they grab onto the lady. And the lady doesn't want the other people to be safe. She wants it for herself and she starts trying to kick those people yeah, off. Cause she's, yeah, because she's worried for her own life. And what happens? They all go back. Yeah, well, I think Instead she... Of, ah. Yeah, yeah. So that to me, that's the, the key to that one is that woman's attitude that yeah. okay, no it's okay if go. I can have the onion. But yeah, nobody that. else can either. Yeah, well, yeah, right, right, right. So, um, the two become affectionate with each other. He treats her as a sister. She loves him more because of the affection he shows her. Mm -hmm. He leaves and goes back to the monastery. Here's where I wanted to go quickly. He comes back to the cell. Father Pacey is praying over Zasima's body. And this is what takes place, 360. The third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, read Father Pacey, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. Marriage, what was that? Um, swept like a whirlwind through Alyosha's mind. There is happiness for her too. She went to the feast. No, she didn't take an eye. She didn't take an eye. That was only a pathetic phrase. So, Alyosha is conscious enough to hear it and also be aware of his own thoughts, responding to... Um, Pacey reading. Sorry. <coughs> and when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto them, They have no wine, Alyosha overheard. Ah, yes, I've been missing it, and I didn't want to miss it. I love that passage. It's Cain of Galilee, the first miracle. He goes on. Um, he wants to see the villagers um, given wine to be fed. Um, at the top of the 361, Jesus saith unto him, fill the water pots. You, you know he calls the governor to, or the people to um, change the water, and they, they do. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, when men will have drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine till now. But what's this? What's this? Why are the walls of the room opening out? The walls around him right now are disappearing or enlarging, expanding. So time and space for a moment change. And suddenly a, um, a figure approaches. I too, my dear, I too have been called, called and chosen, the quiet voice spoke over him. Why are you hiding here out of sight? Come and join us. His voice, the elder Zosima's voice, how could it be anyone else since he was calling? The elder raised Alyosha a little with his hand and Alyosha got up from his knees. We are rejoicing, the little wizened man continued. We are drinking new wine, the wine of the new and great joy. So in some sense, 
Zos, even though the body's here, Zosima's soul has entered joy. Um, the wine of a new and great joy. See how many guests there are. Here are the bridegroom and the bride. Here is the wise ruler of the feast, tasting the new wine. He's offering him wine, in a sense. Why are you marveling at me? I gave a little onion, and so I'm here. And there are many others who gave an onion. Remember, the, the girl was offered an on, onion as the means by which she could pull people out. And so when too many got on it that she let go of it. Alios is having a vision. Paeus, he's praying. He's on his knees, awake, partly, and then it's as if he suddenly dozes off slightly, but he's aware enough to hear, and he's also in a dream. In this dream, Zosima comes to him from this other world, but he's relating to an event that just took place with Grushenka by introducing an onion. So we've been talking about narrative time going sequentially, right? Rational, world, conventional, bourgeois, social time. This happens, this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. Now we've got Zosima's treatise, or Alyosha's report of it. We go back into Zosima's life, and we go back into his homilies, which are, which are readings on the word. Zosima's bringing the word to us. After his trial of faith, Alyosha returns to the cell, Paisi's praying, and he suddenly has this vision. Zosima appears to him, says, come, we have new wine, um, I just, um, and he uses the onion image, which we just got from Grushenka. What's happening to time here? How do we explain this time? Julie. Oh. <laughs> What's going on? <coughs> Just describe it. Just I'd rather somebody else do that. <laughs> 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 it's a dream. Time stands still. I mean, it's a God whole episode. In it's almost like there is no time at that particular point. You say. Well, I was figuring everything out until this point. And now <laughs> it has to be almost like a dream because it just doesn't follow. It's, it's what disjointed. Is, what's, what does it say about time as we know it? Some of the, I mean, some of you, you know, those of you who were here when we did T.S. Eliot's the four quartets and this, the notion of a still point, or Dante, you know, in the Paradiso, the still point, which should change our, I mean, I don't know if that will help anybody here, but, Jeannie, what do you, <clears throat> your presence? It's, it's as if, Ali, for a brief moment, Alyosha is entering God's time, which is, all time. All, yeah. All, yeah. Yeah. It's not linear, it's yeah. all time. Yeah. And he Which there is no begin. Wait, wait. So there is no beginning right, or end. Right. It's all. It's yeah. always there. Like the still point. Yeah. So he, I think he's. You're meant to believe that Alyosha now believes that Zosima was in heaven, and um, and Zosima is um, praising Alyosha for giving. A little onion to Grushenka that day. Yeah, that, yeah. that he yeah. he can do. He can kind of carry on 
Sasuma's work now in the world when now that Sasuma has died. And Grushenka is explicitly linked with that too, even though the town people look at her as a whore and I mean, we're going to see different aspects of her character, but she's linked to this right now in this passage. That onion. Anybody else? Do not look over there. <laughs> what do you think, Gita? What's your response well, I to I think she explained it well. There's no time. I mean, time is a construct of man for us. Um, so there's, for God, that it, it is, it's, it's there. Um, so... Could this be possible without love, this moment that Alyosha has for his mentor and his mentor has for him, God has for both of them? Let me leave with that question because we're short of time and we're supposed to have been out of here and I'm way late already. I'd like to come back to this when we pick up next week, just to return to this question and give us a little bit more time. And then I'd, then I'd like to look at the Dimitri. The Bacchanal, the, the orgy the, between Crazy. involving Dimitri and Grushenka. Uh, <laughs> it's a good, I think it's a great, oh, it's a great episode. I love it. I think it's one of the best in the story. People having too much wine, <laughs> eating more than they should. Yeah. <laughs> kind of sounds like us sometimes, doesn't it? <laughs> That's why I love it. Oh my God. Oh, yeah. That's the first part.